prove ourselves once more able to defend our island home, to ride out the storm of war, and to outlive the menace of tyranny, if necessary for years, if necessary alone. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. Welcome to the South Mims U podcast. Those stirring words by Churchill are often invoked when our island nation enters a difficult period of its history, when its people feel assailed from without, their cherished traditions under threat, and there are some who believe that we have come to a critical period in our history in which one of those cherished traditions, a foundation of what it means to be British, is under attack. Tea. The British cup of tea. The correct way to make and serve tea. The etiquette of the perfect cupper. In a time of global uncertainty and upheaval, that might sound trite, but it's important, especially important, indeed vital to many of us. And to explain why that is so, I have with me Dr Albina Cluckhaven of the South Mims U Etiquette Department, who, I am told, is also the principal of the Magnolia's Charm School in Geneva. I have that honour. I didn't know charm schools still existed. They most certainly do, and they have never been busier. There's such a lack of charm in this world at the moment. Anything we can do to foster it can only aid us a return to civility in all walks of life. Well, you make a good point. Uh, But before we discuss these weighty matters, it is time for tea. Oh, yes, indeed. Tea. Yes. Oh, right. Oh, thank you very much. Oh, and I must say, that's a very charming teapot. It's a shame our listeners can't see it. Georgian silver. The cosy is hand-embroidered Victorian. The china is Wedgwood, of course. Is that willow pattern? Of course. Would you be kind enough to pour for me? My hand is a little shaky. I am not in the first flush of youth, and the appreciation of vintage port is, well, a dangerous pastime. Certainly, certainly. Okay, here we are. There is milk in the jug. Right, thank you. Yes. Please forgive me, Dr Cluckhaven. I didn't even know etiquette was an area of study at university level. Oh, yes. Etiquette is particularly important in social science, and naturally, with the advent of AI, it is going to be even more critical. Artificial intelligence? I don't really understand. There will be less and less employment. Well, that's a pessimistic view. It it might create entirely new jobs, surely. Forgive me. We cannot parrot the usual tropes here. There'll be fewer and fewer jobs. No one is safe. Anyone who works with facts, figures, anything logical could be, probably will, be out of work. Well, I don't see what that has got to do with etiquette. Will there be a, a polite way to claim unemployment benefits? Forgive me. What I mean is that in future, even traditional white-collar professions will be at risk. And when staff are being selected for, uh, uh, well, senior posts, uh, employers will be interested in how they will behave in social situations. As they already do, in fact, but even more so. They'd judge them on how they behaved at, for instance, a formal dinner? Exactly. Or um, how they eat spaghetti 
you can easily go wrong with spaghetti. We devote an entire term to it at the charm school. But with a lack of funds, arranging formal dinners to judge people will be too expensive. There was a move to confine it just to the soup course. Well, why was that? So much cheaper. And soup is much easier to store than, say, lobster thermidor. You can then pretend candidates are attending a full dinner so that you can display the complete place settings with all the appropriate cutlery. Ah, cutlery. Yes, a social minefield. But a soup course can tell you so much about a person's background. The correct way to consume soup is an entire course in our department. Direction and trajectory of spoon, how much of spoon to place in mouth, sip or savour and so on. But even the palaver of a soup course is considered too expensive and now interviews are often conducted solely at tea. Just as we are now. Yes, just as we are now. And I observe that you put your milk in after you poured the tea. Of course. Isn't that the proper way to do it? Yes, it is. But do you know why? Not really. I've always done it that way. The explanation, as is often the way with etiquette, is a simple and logical one. Years ago, China was not as well made as it is now. The finest bone china was always of the best quality, but other um, inferior kinds were not. When boiling tea was poured into these inferior cups, they would often crack and fly with disastrous results. I see. So people taking milk in their tea would put the milk in first to guard the inferior china against the impact of the hot liquid. The inference being that if you put the milk in first, your china was second-rate. Exactly. And that would never do. So a candidate at a tea interview who put his or her milk in first would simply not be the sort of person that the interviewer was looking for. The decision could be made quickly and economically and in a neatly tick-box way, thereby dovetailing with the usual office practices. What about abroad? Abroad? What do you mean? Well, suppose you were interviewing, I don't know, an American candidate, or the interview was happening in America. Oh, it simply would not arise. We'd use coffee. Nobody foreign knows anything about tea. Is America the source of the decline in etiquette that you speak of? It is the epicentre of etiquette entropy. The title of my forthcoming book. That's a good title. And I know that you wrote to the Daily Telegraph calling for an embargo. An etiquette embargo. An etiquette embargo on American goods after a certain video went viral. If Winston Churchill were alive, he would be turning in his grave. Sorry, what? I speak figuratively, of course. The video by a certain Michelle from North Carolina went, in my opinion, too far. Almost a casus belli, I think the expression is. Uh, what did you say it was? A casus belli. An act or situation which provokes a war. Well, surely not. I mean, they did have the Boston Tea Party, but... Uh... And we went to war, didn't we? Mm, yes. I know this will be painful, Adina, but let's remind ourselves of how Michelle from North Carolina advised people to make what she called... British tea. Oh, must we? Well, you could use the tea cosy to block your ears. I can't do that. Actually, I might. Here's the recording. So today we are going to make tea. So fill our mug with water, put it in the microwave, set it for a minute, pour the milk in, drop your tea bag in, add the sugar, give it a little stir, and that's how you make hot tea. That is shocking. 
And the British ambassador to the US even got involved, I think. As is proper. That shows the global importance of this issue. There's even been work done by Chinese scientists who have tried to find a way to make a good cup of tea using a microwave instead of a kettle. Oh, we are entering a new dark age. It's unthinkable. Well, the, the Chinese discovered tea, didn't they? So don't they have a right to do it? No! This is why we must beware of technology. Soon, AI microwaves will be turning us into fleshy blobs, unable to make tea of our own accord. And that will be the end of civilization. Water boiled in a kettle, preferably on a stove, is a proper way to heat water for tea. But these scientists modified a microwave so that you could put a silver-plated vessel into it. Why not invent something useful? Shocking waste of time and resources. I blame Michelle from North Carolina. I feel faint. Okay, okay. Well, let's go back to the controversy about when to put milk in. Why have you focused on that dilemma in your latest writings? Because our physics department has suggested that milk should be put in first after all. It is something to the effect that if the milk is put in after the tea, it heats unevenly, which affects the taste. Whereas if the tea is poured onto the milk, it heats it evenly, which produces a better experience. Well, that does sound a bit logical. It misses the entire point! Tea is not just a drink. It is far more important than that. It is a social thermometer. And we have to have standards. Without them, the whole social edifice collapses. And that includes the physics department of the University of South Mims. OK, well, calm, you can calm down. I am calm. Um, it's interesting to see how obsessed the English are with social edifices. Why are the English so obsessed with class? I, I've often thought about it. And it, is it because we are a, an inward-looking island? That may be something to do with it. But if you're really interested, we need to talk to my expert on class. He is Rupert Fufuks with three Fs, the 23rd Earl of Rockstanhope. I'll see if he answers. He may be in his cab. His cab? He will put you on speakerphone. He's a lorry driver. Well, I thought he would be in his castle. I mean, he's a belted earl, surely. He calls himself a fan-belted earl. He drives a lorry for a living. He will tell you... Class in England has nothing to do with money. That's why the Americans can't understand it. I'm calling him now. Fuchs! Rupee! It's Ali! Ali, hiya! Can you spare a moment? Certainly. I'm in a lay-by on the Loughborough Bypass. University business. It's about class again. Again? What's the question? It's not the livery company ceremonial cup issue again, is it? No, no. I have a lecturer with me who has a question. There, go ahead. Put him on. Uh, my lord. Just call me Roop. Oh, uh, Roop. Uh, Roop. Uh, to cut to the chase, uh, why are the English so obsessed with class? Well, that's a big one. Well, I've spent years pondering this, and I have consulted many, and I have come to the following conclusion. It's because we're a defeated people. Which defeat? Well, I'm going back a thousand years. The English, the Scots are not nearly so class-crazed, the English were defeated by the French at Hastings, 1066. 1066? That's a bit far back, isn't it? Well, yes. Well, that was the start of it. And it's now worked its way so deeply into the English DNA 
DNR that it can never be extracted. Sorry, I don't understand, Rube. At the Battle of Hastings, the English king was defeated by the Norman French King William, even though there was actually a similarity between the two. They were related. Also, some of the English had Viking ancestry, and Norman means Northman, so they all had the same Scandinavian roots. Oh, I never knew that. Well, as I say, they all knew each other. The whole thing was over who inherited what. But the Normans were French and spoke French. And after his victory, William deliberately destroyed the entire English Anglo-Saxon nobility and he replaced them with a French aristocracy. The Sheriff of Nottingham? Yes! The whole Robin Hood legend was part of this. He was supposedly a displaced Saxon, but there you have it, the roots of the class system. French overlords and English second-class citizens. French words became the posh words, and the aristocracy did not actually speak English for several generations. This instilled the us-and-them mentality which still exists to this day. Yeah, and there are a couple more factors. Well, this is fascinating, Rupe. The Normans used primogeniture, the idea that the eldest son inherits an estate. This stopped the huge estates being broken up and the ruling class being diluted. In my family, all the money was lost in a card game in Lockers. Lockers? A famous gentleman's club. That was in 1822. We lost our land, our house, and our money. And though the title is still mine, I do not have a pot to piss in. But socially, I am the equivalent of a member of the House of Lords. Now, this is a concept that most foreigners simply can't understand, especially Americans whose society is based entirely on money and can't believe that here, a millionaire is my social inferior, however rich he is. And what is the other factor? The Queen, a hereditary head of state. So, in America, again, if you work hard and pay attention in school, in theory, you can have the top job, presidents. In theory, anyone can do it. Well, that could never happen here. You have to be born into it, and this is hugely significant. Why? I mean, the, the Queen has no practical power. The point is, the signal it sends is that however hard you work, you can never get the top job. You are what you are born, at whatever level, not what you make of yourself. If you're born lower class, you'll always be lower class. Most people are not even aware of it. It pervades everything like a sort of... Like a sort of infection, and in fact has led you to ask the question, why are the English so obsessed with class? Well, so now I know. There's one other thing. I have made a lifelong study of this. It's the English distrust of intellectualism. In most societies, learning is looked up to. Look at Japan, China. In England, it is not fashionable to be brainy. Everyone looks down on the spot. Not fashionable. Well, what has that got to do with it, Root? Well, firstly, anyone with a brain is a threat to the ruling class. They're always terrified of revolution, even though they know it will never happen here. And from the other side, what is the point of learning? If you're born in a certain class, so long as the Queen is there, you'll stay in it. So why bother? Are you sure that that's right, Root? I mean, according to that, nobody would ever do anything. Generalisation. They're not even saying it's conscious, but its presence is there, and it underlies the whole class system. Well, Rook, do do you have robes and regalia and all that sort of thing? Yes, yeah, yes, in the back of the cab, in case I'm invited to something. And do you get many invitations? Yes, 
I turned most of them down. The aristocracy are pretty dull. It's all the inbreeding. It muzzles them. I usually socialise with other lorry drivers, nice people, and much more interesting. Oh, thank you very much for your time, Ruth. Your expertise in the etiquette of tea is renowned. Are there other fields you are involved in? Indeed. One of the most challenging areas is the etiquette of fast food, burger restaurants and so on, where there is no cutlery involved. As we've said, cutlery can be a bit of a social minefield. Originally, there were just knives. No forks? No. In the mead halls of the Dark Ages, the lord of the manor would just put a wild boar, or whatever it was, on the table and everyone would carve it up with their own knife and then chuck the bones over their shoulders. We've come a long way since then. Have you been on a school bus near a chicken shop? True, true. So when did forks come in? From the Middle Ages. They came from Italy and then France, but they didn't make it to England till surprisingly late, especially among the armed forces. They considered them unmanly. What about spoons? Ancient Egypt and long before. The hand was the first spoon, then maybe shells. Now we're going back to hands in fast food restaurants. Restaurants, not much place for etiquette there. But you say there is. Yes, we're working on our pamphlet, Etiquette for Fast Food, right now. Can you elaborate? Certainly. You can improve hugely on your experience with a couple of simple flourishes. Number one, take a tablecloth with you and spread it on your table. You can easily fold one up and keep it about you, and it will make a big difference to the whole experience. <laughs> You're right there. The second is a little more difficult, but still achievable now that everyone carries a rucksack. A silver tray. A tray? Isn't that a bit expensive? Well, it doesn't have to be solid silver. Silver plate will do just as well, I suppose. So you take your plastic tray from the counter in the usual way, then place your tablecloth on your table and position your silver tray on it. Then transfer your food to that, keeping your plastic tray for clearing up. Fine dining at a fraction of the cost. Is there more involved? Certainly. You also need to bring along some scissors. Tiny nail scissors will do. One of the worst things about fast food is the sauce sachets. They are so badly designed they're almost impossible to open. And when you do, they squirt everywhere. Oh, how true, how true. Simply cut them open with your scissors. You can also use them on the milk sachets. And in a fast food restaurant, you are forced to put the milk in last. So they are very pro-etiquette. Without knowing it. Undoubtedly. Now, the etiquette. Open your cardboard carton and push half of the lid back. Place the chips, and they are chips, not fries, which is a vulgar Americanism, and the burger in the front half and use the back half for any waste. Place your paper napkin on your lap and away you go, making sure you use the same hand to hold both burger and select chips when you put the burger down. Never more than three chips at a time. Dab at your mouth with your napkin when you have finished. Do not eat quickly. The slower you are, the more refined the whole experience will be. Extraordinary. Though your advice might cause the Americans to attack you as vigorously as we vilified Michelle from North Carolina. Oh, quite. We must fight them on the tea trays. Fight them with our fine china cups. And fight any suggestion that the milk goes in first. It does not. Albina Cluckhaven, you are the Churchill of etiquette. Thank you very much. And thank you, dear listener. Please have a nice cup of tea with water boiled in a kettle and served in fine china, milk in last. You can find a lot of other life-changing subjects where you got this episode. Enjoy. Goodbye. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. 
We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. 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 We shall never surrender.